Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 2, The Yosemite Fall. We'll be exploring the myriad of majestic waterfalls that run and flow across the great park, as well as embarking on an unexpected adventure. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. The Grandeur of Yosemite Fall During the time of spring floods, the best near view of the fall is obtained from Fern Ledge on the east side above the blinding spray at a height of about 400 feet above the base of the fall. A climb of about 1,400 feet from the valley has to be made, and there is no trail, but anyone fond of climbing this will make the ascent all the more delightful. A narrow part of the ledge extends to the side of the fall and back of it, enabling us to approach it as close as we wish. When the afternoon sunshine is streaming through the throng of comets, ever wasting, ever renewing, fineness, firmness, and variety of their forms are beautifully revealed. At the top of the fall, they seem to burst forth in irregular spurts from some grand, throbbing mountain heart. Now and then, one mighty throb sends forth a mess of solid water into the free air far beyond the others, which rushes alone to the bottom of the fall, with long streaming tail, like combed silk, while the others, descending in clusters, gradually mingle and lose their identity. But they all rush past us with amazing velocity and display of power, though apparently drowsy and deliberate in their movements when observed from a distance of a mile or two. The head of these comet-like masses are composed of nearly solid water and are dense white in colour like pressed snow from the friction they suffer in rushing through the air the portion worn off forming the tail between the white, lustrous threads and films of which faint, greyish pencilings appear, while the outer, finer sprays of water dust, whirling in sunny eddies, 
are pearly grey throughout. At the bottom of the fall, there is but little distinction of form visible. It is mostly a hissing, clashing, seething, upwhirling mass of scud and spray, through which the light sifts in grey and purple tones, while at times, when the sun strikes at the required angle, the whole wild and apparently lawless, stormy, striving mass is changed to brilliant rainbow hues, manifesting finest harmony. The middle portion of the fall is the most openly beautiful. Lower, the various forms into which the waters are wrought are more closely and voluminously veiled, while higher, towards the head, the current is comparatively simple and undivided. But even at the bottom, in the boiling clouds of spray, there is no confusion, while the rainbow light makes all divine, adding glorious beauty and peace to the glorious power. This noble form has the far richest, as well as the most powerful, voice of all the falls of the valley, its tones varying from the sharp hiss and rustle of the wind in the glossy leaves of the live oak and the soft, sifting, hushing tones of the pines to the loudest rush and roar of storm winds and thunder among the crags of the summit peaks. The low bass, booming, reverberating tones, heard under favourable circumstances five or six miles away, are formed by the dashing and exploding of heavy masses mixed with air upon two projecting ledges on the face of the cliff, the one on which we are standing, and another about two hundred feet above it. The torrent of massive comets is continuous at time of high water, while the explosive, booming notes are wildly intermittent, because unless influenced by the wind, most of the heavier masses shoot out from the face of the precipice and pass the ledges upon which at other times they are exploded. Occasionally, the whole fall is swayed away from the front of the cliff, then suddenly dashed flat against it, or vibrated from side to side like a pendulum, giving rise to endless variety of forms and sounds. The Nevada Fall The Nevada Fall is 600 feet high and is usually ranked next to the Yosemite in general interest among the five main falls of the valley. Coming through the little Yosemite in tranquil reaches, the river is first broken into rapids on a moraine boulder bar that crosses the lower end of the valley. Thence it pursues its way to the head of the fall in a rough, solid rock channel, dashing on side angles, heaving in heavy surging masses against elbow knobs, and swirling and swashing in potholes without a moment's rest. Thus, already chafed and dashed to foam, overfolded and twisted, it plunges over the brink of the precipice, as if glad to escape into the open air. But before it reaches the bottom, it is pulverised yet further, by impinging upon a sloping portion of the cliff about halfway down, thus making it the whitest of the falls of the valley, and altogether one of the most wonderful in the world. 
On the north side, close to its head, a slab of granite projects over the brink, forming a fine point of view over its throng of streamers and wild plunging into its intense white bosom and through the broad drifts of spray to the river far below, gathering its spent waters and rushing on again down the canyon in glad exultation into Emerald Pool, where at length it grows calm and gets rest for what still lies before it. All the features of the view correspond with the waters in grandeur and wildness. The glacier-sculpted walls of the canyon on either head, with the sublime mass of the glacier point ridge in front, form a huge triangular pit-like basin, which, filled with the roaring of the falling river, seems as if it might be the hopper of one of the mills of the gods in which the mountains were being ground. The Vernal Fall The Vernal Fall, about a mile below the Nevada, is four hundred feet high, a staid, orderly, graceful, easy-going fall, proper and exact in every movement and gesture, with scarce a hint of the passionate enthusiasm of the Yosemite or of the impetuous Nevada, whose chafed and twisted waters hurrying over the cliff seem glad to escape into the open air, while its deep, booming, Thundertones reverberate over the listening landscape. Nevertheless, it is a favourite with most visitors, doubtless because it is more accessible than any other, more closely approached and better seen and heard. A good stairway ascends the cliff beside it, and the level plateau at the head enables one to saunter safely along the edge of the river as it comes from Emerald Pool and to watch its waters calmly bending over the brow of the precipice in a sheet eighty feet wide, changing in colour from green to purplish grey and white until dashed on a boulder talus. Thence, Issuing from beneath its fine, broad spray clouds, we see the tremendously adventurous river, still unspent, beating its way down the wildest and deepest of all its canyons, in grey, roaring rapids, dear to the oozel, and below the confluence of Illuit. Sweeping around the shoulder of the half-dome on its approach to the head of the tranquil levels of the valley. The Illuit Fall The Illuit in general appearance most resembles the Nevada. The volume of water is less than half as great, but it is about the same height, six hundred feet and its water receives the same kind of preliminary tossing in a rock, and its waters receive the same kind of preliminary tossing in a rocky, irregular channel. Therefore it is a very white and fine-grained fall. When it is in full springtime bloom, it is partly divided by rocks that roughen the lip of the precipice but this division amounts only to a kind of fluting and grooving of the columns, which has a beautiful effect. It is not nearly so grand a fall as the upper Yosemite, or so symmetrical as the Vernal, or so airily graceful and simple as the Bridal Veil, nor does it ever display so tremendous an outgush of snowy, magnificence as the Nevada, 
nor does it ever display so tremendous an outgush of snowy magnificence as the Nevada. But in the exquisite fineness and richness of texture of its flowing folds, it surpasses them all. One of the finest effects of the sunlight on falling water I ever saw in Yosemite, or elsewhere, I found on the brow of this beautiful fall. It was in the Indian summer, when the leaf colours were ripe, and the great cliffs and domes were transfigured in the hazy, golden air. I had scrambled up its rugged, talus-dammed canyon, oftentimes stopping to take breath, and to look back to admire the wonderful views to be had there of the great half-dome, and to enjoy the extreme purity of water, which in the motionless pools of this stream is almost perfectly invisible, the coloured foliage of the maples, dogwoods, rubus tangles, etc., and the late golden rods and asters. The voice of the fall was now low, and the grand spring and summer floods had waned to sifting, drifting gauze and thin broidered folds of linked and arrowy lacework. When I reached the foot of the fall, sunbeams were glinting across its head, leaving all the rest of it in shadow, and on its illuminated brow, a group of yellow spangles of singular form and beauty were playing, flashing up and dancing in large, flame-shaped masses, wavering at times, then steadying, rising and falling in accord with the shifting forms of the water. But the colour of the dancing spangles changed not at all. Nothing in clouds or flowers, on bird wings or the lips of shells, could rival in its fineness. It was the most divinely beautiful mass of rejoicing yellow light I had ever beheld. One of nature's precious gifts that perchance may come to us but once in a lifetime. The Minor Falls There are many other comparatively small falls and cascades in the valley. The most notable are the Yosemite Gorge Fall and Cascades, Tenaya Fall and Cascades, Royal Arch Falls, the two Sentinel Cascades, and the falls of Cascade and Tamarack Creeks, a mile or two below the lower end of the valley. These last are often visited. The others are seldom noticed or mentioned, although in almost any other country they would be visited and described as wonders. The six intermediate falls in the gorge between the head of the lower and the base of the upper Yosemite Falls, separated by a few deep pools and strips of rapids, and three slender, tributary cascades on the west side, form a series more strikingly varied and combined than any other in the valley. Yet very few of all the valley visitors ever see them or hear them. No available standpoint commands a view of them all. The best general view is obtained from the mouth of the gorge, near the head of the lower fall. The two lowest of the series, together with one of the three tributary cascades, are visible from this standpoint. But in reaching it, the last twenty or thirty feet of the descent is rather dangerous in times of high water, the shelving rocks being then slippery on account of spray. But if one should chance to slip when the water is low, only a bump or two and a harmless plash would be a penalty. 
No part of the gorge, however, is safe to any but cautious climbers. Though the dark gorge hall of these rejoicing waters is never flushed by the purple light of morning or evening, it is warmed and cheered by the white light of noonday, which, falling into so much foam and spray of varying degrees of fineness, makes marvellous displays of rainbow colours. So filled, indeed, it is with the precious light, at favourable times it seems to take the place of common air. Laurel bushes shed fragrance into it from above, and live oaks, those fearless mountaineers, hold fast to angular seams and lean out over it with their fringing sprays and bright mirror leaves. One bird, the oozel, loves this gorge and flies through it merrily, or cheerily, rather, stopping to sing on foam-washed bosses where other birds could find no rest for their feet. I have even seen a grey squirrel down in the heart of it, beside the wild, rejoicing water. One of my favourite night walks was along the rim of this wild gorge, in times of high water, when the moon was full, to see the lunar boughs in the spray. For about a mile above Mirror Lake, the Tanaya Canyon is level, and richly planted with fir, Douglas spruce, and Libocedrus, forming a remarkably fine grove, at the head of which is the Tanaya Fall. Though seldom seen or described, this is, I think, the most picturesque of all the small falls. A considerable distance above it, Tanaya Creek comes hurrying down, white and foamy, over a flat pavement inclined at an angle of about 18 degrees. In times of high water, this sheet of rapids is nearly 70 feet wide and is varied in a very striking way by three parallel furrows that extend in the direction of its flow. These furrows worn by the action of the stream upon cleavage joints, vary in width, are slightly sinuous, and have large boulders firmly wedged in them here and there in narrow places, giving rise, of course, to a complicated series of wild dashes, doublings, and upleaping arches in the swift torrent. Just before it reaches the head of the fall, the current is divided, the left division making a vertical drop of about eighty feet in a romantic, leafy, flowery, mossy nook, while the other forms a rugged cascade. The Royal Arch Fall in time of high water is a magnificent object, forming a broad, ornamental sheet in front of the arches. The two sentinel cascades, three thousand feet high, are also grand spectacles when the snow is melting fast in the spring. But by the middle of the summer, they are diminished to mere streaks, scarce noticeable amid the sublime surroundings. The Beauty of the Rainbows The Bridal Vale and Vernal Falls are famous for their rainbows, and special visits to them are often made when the sun shines into the spray at the most favourable angle. But amid the spray and foam and fine ground mist, ever rising from the various falls and cataracts, there is an affluence and variety of iris boughs, scarcely known to visitors 
who stay only a day or two. Both day and night, winter and summer, this divine light may be seen wherever water is falling, dancing, singing, telling the heart peace of nature amid the wildest displays of her power. In the bright spring mornings, the black-walled recess at the foot of the lower Yosemite Fall is lavishingly fine, with irised spray. And not simply does this span the dashing foam, but the foam itself, the whole mass of it, beheld at a certain distance, seems to be coloured, and drips and wavers from colour to colour, mingling with the foliage of the adjacent trees, without suggesting any relationship to the ordinary rainbow. This is perhaps the largest and most reservoir-like fountain of iris colours to be found in the valley. Lunar rainbows or spraybows are also abound in the glorious affluence of dashing, rejoicing, hurrahing, enthusiastic spring floods, their colours as distinct as those of the sun and regularly and obviously banded, though less vivid. Fine specimens may be found any night at the foot of the upper Yosemite Fall, glowing gloriously amid the gloomy shadows and thundering water, whenever there is plenty of moonlight and spray. Even the secondary bow is at times distinctly visible. The best point from which to observe them is on Fern Ledge. For some time after moonrise, at time of high water, the ark has a span of about 500 feet and is set upright, one end planted in the boiling spray at the bottom, the other in the edge of the fall, creeping lower, of course, and becoming less upright as the moon rises higher. This grand arc of colour, glowing in mild, shapely beauty, is so weird and huge a chamber of night shadows, and amid the rush and roar and tumultuous dashing of this thunder-voiced fall, is one of the most impressive cheering of all the blessed mountain evangels. Smaller boughs may be seen in the gorge on the plateau between the upper and lower falls. Once towards midnight, after spending a few hours with the wild beauty of the upper fall, I sauntered along the edge of the gorge, looking in here and there, whenever the footing felt safe, to see what I could learn of the night aspects of the smaller falls that dwelt there and down in an exceedingly black, pit-like portion of the gorge, at the front of the highest of the intermediate falls, into which the moonbeams were pouring through a narrow opening, I saw a well-defined spray bow, beautifully distinct in colours, spanning the pit from side to side, while pure white foam waves beneath the beautiful bow were constantly springing up out of the dark into the moonlight like dancing ghosts. An Unexpected Adventure A wild scene, but not a safe one, is made by the moon as it appears through the edge of the Yosemite Fall when one is behind it. Once, after enjoying the night song of the waters and watching the formation of the coloured bow, as the moon came round the domes and sent her beams into wild uproar, I ventured out onto the narrow bench that extends back of the fall from Fern Ledge and began to admire the dim-veiled grandeur of the view. I could see the fine gauzy threads of the fall's filmy border by having the light in front, 
and wishing to look at the moon through the meshes of some of the denser portions of the fall, I ventured to creep farther behind it while it was gently wind-swayed, without taking sufficient thought about the consequences of its swaying back to its natural position after the wind pressure should be removed. The effect was enchanting. Fine, savage music sounded above, beneath, around me, while the moon, apparently in the very midst of the rushing waters, seemed to be struggling to keep her place on account of the ever-varying form and density of the water masses through which she was seen, now darkly veiled or eclipsed by a rush of thick-headed comets, now flashing out through openings between their tails. I was in fairyland between the dark wall and the wild throng of illuminated waters, but suffered sudden disenchantment, for, like the witch scene in Alloway Kirk, in an instant all was dark. Down came a dash of spent comets, thin and harmless looking in the distance, but they fell desperately solid and stony when they struck my shoulders like a mixture of choking spray and gravel and big hailstones. Instinctively, dropping on my knees, I gripped an angle of the rock, curled up like a young fern frond with my face pressed against my breast, and in this attitude submitted as best I could to my thundering bath. The heavier masses seemed to strike like cobblestones, and there was a confused noise of many waters about my ears, hissing, gurgling, clashing sounds that were not heard as music. The situation was quickly realised. How fast one's thoughts burn in such times of stress. I was weighing chances of escape. Would the column be swayed a few inches away from the wall, or would it come yet closer? The fall was in flood, and not so lightly would its ponderous mass be swayed. My fate seemed to depend on a breath of the idle wind. It was moved gently forward, the pounding ceased, and I was once more visited by glimpses of the moon but fearing I might be caught at a disadvantage in making too hasty a retreat, I moved only a few feet along the bench to where a block of ice lay. I wedged myself between the ice and the wall and lay face downward until the steadiness of the light gave encouragement to rise and get away. Somewhat nerve-shaken, drenched and benumbed, I made out to build a fire, warmed myself up, ran home, reached my cabin before daylight, got an hour or two of sleep, and awoke sound and comfortable, better, not worse, from my hard midnight bath. Climate and Weather Owing to the westerly trend of the valley and its vast depth, there is a great difference between the climates of the north and south sides. Greater than between many countries far apart, for the south wall is in shadow during the winter months, while the north is bathed in sunshine every clear day. Thus there is mild spring weather on one side of the valley, while winter rules the other. Many a nook may be found closely embraced by sun-beaten rock bosses in which flowers bloom every month of the year. Even butterflies may be seen in these high winter gardens, except when snowstorms are falling and a few days after they have ceased. 
near the head of the lower Yosemite Fall in January, I found the ant lions lying in wait in their warm sand cups, rock ferns being unrolled, club mosses covered with fresh growing plants, the flowering of the laurel nearly open, and the honeysuckle rosetted with bright young leaves. Every plant seemed to be thinking about summer. Even on the shadow side of the valley, the frost is never very sharp. The lowest temperature I ever observed during four winters was seven degrees Fahrenheit. The first twenty-four days of January had an average temperature at 9am of 32 degrees, minimum 22 degrees. At 3pm, the average was 40 degrees, the minimum 32. Along the top of the wall, 7,000 and 8,000 feet high, the temperature was of course much lower. But the difference in temperature between the north and south sides is not due so much to the winter sunshine as the heat of the preceding summer, stored up in the rocks, which rapidly melts the snow in contact with them. For though summer sun heat is stored in the rocks of the south side also, the amount is much less because the rays fall obliquely on the south wall, even in summer, and almost vertically on the north. The upper branches of the Yosemite streams are buried every winter beneath a heavy mantle of snow, and set free in the spring in magnificent floods. Then, all the fountains, full and overflowing, Every living thing breaks forth into singing, and the glad, exulting streams, shining and falling in the warm, sunny weather, shake everything into music, making all the mountain world a song. The great annual spring thaw usually begins in May in the forest region, and in June and July on the high Sierra, varying somewhat both in time and fullness with the weather and the depth of the snow. Toward the end of summer, the streams are in their lowest ebb, few even of the strongest singing, much above a whisper they slip and ripple through the gravel and boulder beds from pool to pool in the hollow of their channels, and drop in patterning showers like rain, and slip down precipices, and fall in sheets of embroidery, fold over fold. But, however low they're singing, it is always ineffably fine in tone, in harmony with the rest of the time of year. The first snow of the season that comes to the help of the streams usually falls in September or October, sometimes even in the later part of August, in the midst of yellow Indian summer, when the golden rods and gentians of the glacier meadows are in their prime. This Indian summer snow, however, soon melts. The chilled flowers spread their petals to the sun, and the gardens, as well as their streams, are refreshed as if only a warm shower has fallen. The snowstorms that load the mountains to form the main fountain supply for the year seldom set in before the middle or end of November. Winter Beauty of the Valley When the first heavy storms stop work on the high mountains, I made haste down to my Yosemite den, not to be hole up and sleep the white months away. I was out every day, and often all night, 
sleeping but little, studying the so-called wonders and common things ever on show, wading, climbing, sauntering among the blessed storms and calms, rejoicing in almost everything alike that I could see or hear. The glorious brightness of frosty mornings, the sunbeams pouring over the white domes and crags, into the groves and waterfalls, kindling marvellous iris fires in the hoarse frost and spray, and the great forest and mountains in their deep noon sleep, the good night alpen glow, the stars, the solemn gazing moon, drawing the huge domes and headlands one by one, glowing white out of the shadows, hushed and breathless, like an audience in awful enthusiasm, while the meadows at their feet sparkle with frost stars, like the shy, the sublime darkness of storm nights. When all the lights are out, the clouds in whose depth the frail snow flowers grow, the behaviour and many voices of the different kinds of storms, trees, birds, waterfalls, and snow avalanches in ever-changing weather. Every clear, frosty morning, loud sounds are heard, booming and reverberating from side to side of the valley at intervals of a few minutes, beginning soon after sunrise and continuing an hour or two, like a thunderstorm. In my first winter in the valley, I could not make out the source of this noise. I thought of falling boulders, rock blasting, etc. Not till I saw what looked like hoarfrost dropping from the side of the fall was the problem explained. The strange thunder is made by the fall of sections of ice, formed of spray that is frozen on the face of the cliff along the side of the upper Yosemite fan, a sort of crystal plaster, a foot or two thick, racked off by the sunbeams, awakening all the valley like cock crowing, announcing the finest weather shouting aloud nature's infinite industry and love of hard work in creating beauty. Exploring the Ice Cone This frozen spray gives rise to one of the most interesting winter features of the valley, a cone of ice at the foot of the fall, four or five hundred feet high. From the fern ledge standpoint, its crater-like throat is seen, down which the fall plunges with deep, gasping explosions of compressed air, and, after being well churned in the wormy interior, the water bursts forth through arched openings at its base, apparently scourged and weary and glad to escape while belching spray spouted up out of the throat past the descending current is wafted away in irised drifts to the adjacent rocks and groves. It is built during the night and early hours of the morning, only in spells of exceptionally cold and cloudy weather is the work continued through the day. The greater part of the spray material falls in crystalline showers directed to its place, something like a small local snowstorm. But a considerable portion is first frozen on the face of the cliff along the sides of the fall and stays there until expanded and cracked off in irregular masses, some of them tons in weight to be built into the walls of the cone. While in windy, frosty weather, when the fall is swayed from side to side, 
The cone is well drenched, and loose ice masses and spray dust are all firmly welded and frozen together. Thus, the finest of the downy wafts and curls of spray dust, which in mild nights falls about as silently as dew, are held back until sunrise to make a store of heavy ice to reinforce the waterfall's thunder tones. While the cone is in process of formation, growing higher and wider in the frosty weather, it looks like a beautiful, smooth, pure white hill. But when it is wasting and breaking up in spring, its surface is strewn with leaves, pine branches, stones, sand, etc., that have been brought over the fall, making it look like a heap of avalanche detritus. Anxious to learn what I could about the structure of this curious hill, I often approached it in calm weather and tried to climb it, carrying an axe to cut steps. Once I nearly succeeded in gaining the summit. At the base, I was met with a current of spray and wind that made seeing and breathing difficult. I pushed on backward, however and soon gained the slope of the hill, whereby creeping close to the surface, most of the choking blast passed over me, and I managed to crawl up with but little difficulty. Thus I made my way nearly to the summit, halting at times to peer up through the wild whirls of spray at the veiled grandeur of the fall or to listen to the thunder beneath me. The whole hill was sounding as if it were a huge, bellowing drum. I hoped that by waiting until the fall was blown aslant, I should be able to climb to the lip of the crater and get a view of the interior. But a suffocating blast, half air, half water, followed by the fall of an enormous mass of frozen spray from a spot high up on the wall, quickly discouraged me. The whole cone was jarred by the blow, and some fragments of the mass sped past me dangerously near, so I beat a hasty retreat, chilled and drenched, and lay down on a sunny rock to dry. Once, during a windstorm, when I saw that the fall was frequently blown westward, leaving the cone dry, I ran up to the fern ledge, hoping to gain a clear view of the interior. I set out at noon. All the way up the storm notes were so loud about me that the voice of the fall was almost drowned by them. Notwithstanding, the rocks and bushes everywhere were drenched with the wind-driven spray. I approached the brink of the precipice, overlooking the mouth of the ice cone, but I was almost suffocated by the drenching, gusty spray and was compelled to seek shelter. I searched for some hiding place in the wall from whence I might run out at some opportune moment when the fall was in its whirling spray and torn shreds of comets, tails and trailing, tattered skirts were borne westward, as I had seen it carried several times before, leaving the cliffs on the east side and the ice hills bare in the sunlight. I had not long to wait, for, as if ordered so for my special accommodation, the mighty downrush of comets, with their whirling drapery, swung westward and remained aslant for nearly half an hour. The cone was admirably lighted and deserted by the water, which fell most of the time on the rocky western slopes, mostly outside of the cone. The mouth into which the fall pours was, 
as near as I could guess, about one hundred feet in diameter, north and south, about two hundred feet east and west, which is about the shape and size of the fall at its best in its normal condition at this season. The crater-like opening was not a true oval, but more like a huge, coarse mouth. I could see down the throat about one hundred feet or perhaps further. The fall precipice overhangs from a height of four hundred feet above the base. Therefore, the water strikes some distance from the base of the cliff, allowing space for the accumulation of a considerable mass of ice between the fall and the wall.